As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, today on the programme, we're asking, are Christians happier than atheists? Uh, Research out this very week, no less, from the UK Office of National Statistics does suggest that people of faith are happier than atheists. Now, according to a report in the Huffington Post, it says religious people from all different faiths are happier than those who have no religion. Uh, Of all the faiths in the UK, apparently Hindus are the happiest, scoring well above the national average, and just under the demographic of people who consider themselves to be in very good health. This is all, as I say, according to data compiled by the Office for National Statistics. Uh, Christians of all denominations come in second uh, in terms of happiness, followed by Sikhs and Buddhists. Um, I'm sure the data also tells us how other people on the list fare in terms of Muslims, Jews and so on. Um, So... uh, Those who followed these religions apparently were happier than the average person who scored a happiness rating of 7.38 out of 10. Well, we're talking about happiness and well-being and uh, whether, in general, Christians are happier than atheists, what the surveys say, um, how we should interpret them and that sort of thing. And uh, our Christian guest on the programme to help us do that is Anne Morrissey. Uh, She regularly speaks on mission and community ministry and her books and research regularly engage with issues around happiness and well-being, especially in later life. Uh, She says that, yes, uh, religious faith does overall seem to correlate with a certain amount of well-being, but it's certainly something that is not that simple. Um, We'll be finding out from Anne uh, exactly how we should approach these kinds of statistics. Uh, Our atheist guest is Craig A. James. He's a blogger. He's the author of The Religion Virus. Uh, He believes that studies which claim to show people of religious faith are happier than atheists are often skewed by the fact it's harder, in his view, to be an atheist in predominantly religious countries. Um, So uh, we're going to open up this conversation. I'm sure it'll be an interesting one. Uh, We'll probably draw on a few different aspects of research that have gone on in the last several years in this respect. Um, but first of all, a very warm welcome to you, Anne, and thank you for joining me in the studio today. Thank you. 
It's great to have you with me. And uh, how did you get into sort of being interested in this sort of an area of um, faith, happiness, well-being and so on? Well, I go back um, to the eons of the 1980s when my first job was as a research assistant working with Sir Alastair Hardy and David Hay. Sir Alastair Hardy is, um, well, was certainly a very eminent evolutionist. Mm. And he was interested really in whether religion had survival value Mm. um, because he observed quite rightly that church attendance had taken a bit of a hit. Mm -hmm. Did that mean that the species no longer required religion um, as part of its resilience? And that's where I came in. Were you able to persuade him that the Christianity still still makes sense in our evolutionary world? Well, he was very wise in that he thought some of the overlay that might make Christians feel as if it's it's their claim for virtue and well-being, he would say what mattered was in fact religious experience. Mm. And certainly there is um, repeated research which suggests that a religious experience and of course we can debate what that Mm. might be, Um, religious experience certainly does seem to add to people's well-being Mm. and their resilience. Now, I'm sure you'd be the last person to say that being a Christian or someone of any faith is is an automatic route to happiness and joy, much as it sometimes gets painted that way by perhaps overzealous types. But um, in general, would you say that in your experience, and what you've seen of faith communities and your engagement with them, that that you, 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 you would say from your anecdotal experience this is true? Well, I can say more than that, really. I can say that the practices associated with being a Christian do seem to bring a fusion of a whole host of elements that contribute to well-being, um, which is a rather skewed way of answering your question. Mm. Um, But there are things like having a sense of purpose, which for Christians we might call that discipleship. Um, A sense of belonging, we might call that fellowship. Um, Able to calm anxiety, we might call that reassurance. And then, of course, the key principle of practising gratitude um, have all been demonstrated as being key features that contribute to well-being. Um, So those are practices. So whether it's religion Mm. per se Mm. or the business of trying to be Christian that brings well-being, it'd be interesting to hear Craig's thoughts on that. I I, I saw a really interesting uh, quote. I can't remember now who it was, but but someone as an atheist saying that, or perhaps someone else saying, the hardest thing about being an atheist is feeling gratitude but having no one to say thank you to. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I'd be really interested in I'm our sure debate. I'm sure Craig will is have something right, to Craig? say about that. Um, I, I mean, we'll come to some of the statistics and, and so on in the research. So that'll be very interesting to break open in the course of the programme. But thanks for coming in today uh, to talk to us about this and give us your perspective on it, Anne. Um, and uh, my other guest is Craig James. Uh, as I mentioned, he's a blogger and author of The Religion Virus. Um, Craig, you're based out on the west coast of the US. USA, aren't you? That's right. I'm in San Diego. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, despite the time difference, it's great to have you on the program today. Thank you, um, thank you for having me. Um, it's very kind of you to join us because I really got in touch after seeing a blog post that you'd put up in which you were critiquing um, the fact that some surveys seem to purport that 
having faith is good for happiness and so on. And, and you felt that wasn't quite the full story. Uh, just first of all, give us a bit of your story, though, Craig. Um, have you always seen yourself as an atheist? Did you have a moment where you uh, where you came to that realization? No, I never had a moment like that. I'd say I've always been an atheist. I very distinctly remember uh, when I was in grade school um, learning the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, which in America includes this phrase, under God. And I thought, well, I can't say that. So I guess I'm an outcast here in my mm. class. Everybody else doing this. And this is when I was maybe six years old. I came from a, my parents were vaguely religious, but we never really went to church or anything. My Grandparents were quite religious. My grandmother was a Quaker and my grandfather was a Baptist. But uh, I guess the faith didn't carry on through the generations in my case. What, so no, I, what, why, what's made you, in that sense, if it was never pushed upon you, um, made you kind of decide to really go for it in terms of rejecting it and writing a blog on it and a book on it and so on? Well, I think the view that I've rejected it is, is wrong. Uh, I did write a book on it indeed, but rejecting it implies that you accepted it in the first place. Sure. And <laughs> The term atheist means doesn't mean that you reject God. It means you're without God. Right. And, uh, you know, of course, we atheists like to contend that everybody is born an atheist. You have to be taught religion. And if you're never taught it and you're raised in a scientific environment as I was, it just never seems necessary to invoke those sorts of things. So there's no big moment here where I rejected God, although I know many people do. Uh, people like Dan Barker, who was a an evangelical priest, a preacher, and, you know, wrote some very good books about his journey. But I wasn't one of those. I just mm. went through life an atheist, never needed to. The question of how I came to write is is kind of an interesting one. There's a, a long story. I won't bore you with the whole thing. But I was working in Silicon Valley at the time for Hewlett Packard as an engineer, and the company was going through some really bad times. And I started, uh, I was also going to Stanford University at the time studying among other things, artificial intelligence and what makes us, and that leads you to all these philosophical questions about what makes us human and so forth. And I got to looking at this idea of uh, cultural evolution and asked myself, why is it that corporations seem to always follow the same path of, uh, from you know, exciting and so forth to these dull companies that just are like all the other companies? And one thing led to another, and I started looking at religion in the same context, and I had a bit of an epiphany about this, and epiphany being an odd word since it means a visitation from God, but <laughs> in, the, in the more common sense yes, of the word. I understand uh, what you mean. I started studying the history of religion. I'd never been exposed mm. to it at all. I really learned quite a bit about it, and also in terms of some of the ideas that uh, Dawkins and Dennett and other philosophers who have, who have studied these things and looking at culture from an evolutionary point of view and thinking of some of the ideas, how evolution... I, evolutionary ideas can apply to cultural entities yes. uh, got me to thinking about it looks like churches evolve in very much the same way that Darwin talked about life evolving so well that, that's it an, it, it, yeah it's an interesting thesis and one we could explore on another time perhaps well it, it, that, that was that's how I came to this whole topic and then yeah. of course I having published a book on that very topic I started blogging to make my book popular and one thing led to another and I stumbled across <laughs> this topic of our atheists happier or not and, 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 and here you are now on a british radio station talking about it but and what were you going to say well i was only going to say that craig and i in some ways have a similar origin in that um sir alistair hardy fellow of the royal society um was actually the tutor for dawkins how was he and hmm. sir alistair yes. ended up concluding that religion was helpful to the species, where, of course, Richard Dawkins went in the opposite yes, direction. He, he, he saw it as a, 
a virus of sorts, a, 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 me- a meme that's unhelpful. Yes. But um, we're not debating that so so much today. We're, we really wanted to focus down on this issue of happiness specifically. Um, and uh, the other issue Craig raises of um, is an atheist someone who simply lacks belief in God? Again, something we've covered on the show before, but uh, no time to press all these questions. But um, we, we, we're looking forward to your interaction today, Craig. And uh, uh, let me just remind you, if you're listening and you'd like to take part by... Sending your feedback in, then why not email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. I try to read out as many messages as I can at the end of each program, so uh, we look forward to hearing what you have to say about today's show, and you'll hear that on next week's program. Uh, or you can equally get in touch via the Facebook and Twitter accounts at unbelievablejb to follow the show on Twitter, facebook.com/slash unbelievablejb to follow me on Facebook, and uh, we'll be hearing your thoughts that way as well towards the end of today's program. Today we're asking. Are Christians happier than atheists? Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. And joining me on the show today are uh, two guests, as usual. Anne Morrissey is our Christian guest, regularly speaks on mission and community ministry, and has done a certain amount of research and writing on issues around happiness and well-being. Uh, our atheist guest, Craig A. James, is a blogger and author of The Religion Virus, and uh, he believes that uh, studies show that actually, uh, although often they seem to point to religious faith being a marker of happiness, uh, we can often get a skewed idea of the, the factors involved. Um Let's go to some of the big picture research. These particular statistics I mentioned at the beginning of the programme from the Office of National Statistics uh, have only just come out. You haven't had a chance to look at those, Anne. But what about other um, studies and what what would be the key ones that, that would often be cited in this kind of a discussion? Well, one of the things that I think has to be held alongside any assessment of the contribution of the Christian faith is what is known as the U-shaped curve mm-hmm. of happiness. Basically, this is work by Oswald and Blanchflower, what they have discovered through looking at data from across all kinds of cultures and nations, that well-being tends to start high mm. in the earlier stages of life and then, of course, hits a trough in midlife and rises in later years. Now, the reason why I offer that as a background is to acknowledge that when we look at happiness and faith, there can be all kinds of intervening variables. Mm. So, for example, my experience as a Christian in Britain is that I tend to be part of an older group, which would then be picking up some of the observations that well-being rises anyway Mm. in later years. So rather than being, I think, rather arrogant in presuming that it's faith that makes the difference, it certainly plays a part, but it is only part of the story. When it comes to... Is is there any way, I suppose, of of accounting for those variables and still being able to come to a broad conclusion that faith seems to be an indicator of, of happiness? Yes, what we tend to do now in in terms of research is not just to um, do original research, but to pool um, large tranches of data Mm. um, based on the work of earlier researchers. And certainly the pattern there 
again across faiths and across cultures, would seem to suggest that doing business with God, um, or gods if you're a Hindu, um, seems to be rewarded in some kind of well-being. Although I have to say that well-being, rightfully, is a rather superficial issue. Um, because life's tough. And what I think is more intriguing and realistic is that it's resilience as much as happiness that mm, matters. Yeah, Because resilience is about being able to take a hit yeah. and to be able to regain your poise. Now, that contribution is also coming through in relation to faith. Because there's a sense in which our happiness could just be a product of the fact that we happen to have lived a very fortunately stress-free life. But I suppose resilience is living a, a, a life that may have its yeah. stresses and strains but still managing to to be happy yeah. despite it. There, there are clearly some, cert, some key, um, and to borrow a term from Bella, habits of the heart which people of faith will tend to engaging, which, through the grace of God, seem to bring this kind of robustness emotionally. Now, is that a factor of simply um, the practice of, I don't know, um, going to church and being involved in a community, perhaps the rhythm of prayer and that sort of thing that, that sort of is, as you say, almost habitual and, and has that positive effect? Or is there any way of saying, no, it really is because answers to prayer are being received or, or any such thing? I think it's there's no evidence that it's the latter. Mm -hmm. um, so you could find some evidence that anxiety levels um, might become lower with faith. Um, that might be because we sing. Mm. Singing is associated with managing anxiety. Um, it may be that we have a more hopeful perspective on the future and that might be rooted in a confidence in a God who is alongside. Um, it could be that we find a discipline and a solidarity with other Christians in order to choose our attitude to our circumstances. And then and I can't kind of... And, and these are things that are specific to being involved in Christian faith as opposed to you couldn't get the same effects from being a member of a golf club or something? Well, the evidence suggests you can't. One of the most interesting and most recent findings that's based on British work um, is that cheerfulness is linked with doing business with God, hmm. more so than volunteering for community action right. um, or being a member of a political party. Now, I've pondered why it might be that cheerfulness keeps breaking out in relation to church going um, and some of the listeners might want to send in some ideas <laughs> um, but it doesn't naturally follow from my experience um, but certainly Craig will be familiar with the very standard work of the cheerful nuns of Milwaukee who broke the scale on cheerfulness Tell us about the cheerful nuns of Milwaukee and then we'll, we will come to Craig in a moment Well it's... Um, it's very nice for researchers to be able to base their work on a captive audience. And this is a captive sample of um, a religious order in Milwaukee um, whose level of cheerfulness, despite adversity, um, is quite extraordinary. 
Um, so much so that they've then gone on to offer their brains to science. Really? <laughs> because there is an increasing amount of evidence that doing business with God changes the actual structure of our brains. Mm. Now, that's not to say there aren't other practices that don't also achieve that. Um, what, what made these nuns so cheerful? That's kind of what I want to know. <laughs> well, it's an act of rebellion, isn't it? It's an act of resistance to be cheerful. Mm. When stuff's happening and it's tough, to actually retain a cheerfulness, I think, is, is one of the passive um, ways of mm. saying, Do you know what, this is not the last word. There is more. There is a hopefulness. Yeah. So the, um, these un, unreasonably cheerful nuns give us a little well, taster yes, of... that makes them sound a bit neurotic. <laughs> well, no, I think but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a sense of oh, what I mean by that is, you know, despite the circumstances, they, they seem to exhibit this, this cheerfulness. Well, lovely. Um, uh, let's, let's bring Craig into the conversation at this point. Craig, what, what's your response to these, these general trends that Anne is identifying in terms of religious um, experience and um, practice tending to, towards well-being and happiness? Well, it's an interesting question, and uh, I guess my general feeling on this, first of all, is that it tends to be a political question, and I say political not in the uh, government politics, but in the politics of religion sense, mm. that a lot of people would like to use these facts to promote whether their particular beliefs are right or wrong. And so the first thing I'd like to do is completely separate those two questions, because there's an implication uh, and I know it's not, uh, I don't think Anne is saying that, but many people do. There's an implication that if something is good, if something makes you happy, if something helps the world, that that thing is inherently more true than if something is bad or negative or so forth, that that must be the wrong answer. Hmm. And those two hmm. things are just not correlated. It's something, I like to draw the analogy, uh, you know, I live right here by Camp Pendleton, which is where, of the, where many of the Marines are stationed in America. And a lot of them were killed in the last few years in the various wars we've decided to fight around the world. And imagine you had a, a young woman who's you know seven months pregnant and her husband uh, is killed in Iraq. And you say, my gosh, what should we do? We have to lie to this woman. And by doing that, you tell her her husband's fine and you contrive letters mm -hmm. and so forth. And you say, and she would, in fact, be happier. Of course she would. But who, who, what moral person would even consider taking a course of action like that? Now, this is a very extreme example just to illustrate the point. But the main point is that, first of all, I agree with most of these studies. A lot of atheists reject them. They call them bad science. They don't want to believe them. They'd like to think that, uh, in fact, atheists are just as happy because that makes their side seem somehow more uh, tolerable or acceptable or true. Mm. I like to just look at the facts, and Anne has cited some very good facts, and I have uh, some other studies, too. The, the question of who is happier and why who is happier? I think there's no question that uh, religious people do tend to be happier. To me, the more interesting question is why yeah. this is true. And, and I, I totally accept what you're saying there, Craig, that, that a measure of, of someone's happiness is not a measure of whether what they claim to believe is actually true or not. Um, uh, any more than, you know, we, we would say that someone who's deliriously out of their head on drugs is therefore, um, you know, in, in a sense, in a good place uh, either. But I mean, uh, granting all that, um, do do you have any concerns over some of the studies that, that have been done regarding religion and happiness? Well, there have been quite a few. And um, I think, of course, some of them are badly done and, and a lot of them are well done. Um, 
But no, I think that by and large, the ones, the one that you cited this morning that came out in the Huffington Post, I have not had a chance to read that, but I, I have no reason to believe that it's wrong, that uh, the Hindus are the happiest and the Christians are next and the atheists tend to fall at the back of the pack. And that's been a theme that's run through many of these uh, studies. So I, I pretty much accept all of that. I think it's, it's good so, science. So why, why, are, why are atheists in general less happy then? Could, could, <laughs> could, could you, or why do they report being less happy at least? Well, there's a variety of reasons. The the one uh, one of the most interesting studies, in fact, the one I believe I blogged about that uh, was the one you found mm. uh, through which you found me. Uh, there were two. One was done by uh, the University of Edinburgh, Jan Eichhorn, and they did a study of a large. It was about uh, it was a large body of people, and what they discovered was that people are actually happier if they're surrounded by others with the same beliefs as themselves. Now, in a community like England, where you have a large Hindu population, you can understand that the Hindus, they probably have their own communities, the Christians have their own communities, and so forth. And so those results from the Huffington Post make sense. But when you look at the smaller groups, you know, atheists, they're growing, but they are a smaller group. Um, they tend, first of all, they tend to be the minority, and so, of course, they're discriminated against by society and by their peers. And um, secondly, they don't tend to have cultural groups the way churches do. One of the things that, that Anne talked about was the support you get from your community, and atheists just don't flock together the way other people do. And so I'm sure there's some effect from that. In fact, that's yes. being Though, though, though even, even that, it could be argued, is, is changing if you look at things like the, the so-called atheist church here in the UK. I was, I was just going to mention the same thing. The, the humanists <laughs> here in San Diego have what they call Sunday school, and they get together, they sing songs, they yeah. try to emulate all the things they feel come, and these are not just atheists, they're also humanists and various yes. other secularists who may have various types of spirituality but don't fall into the traditional categories of Christianity or yeah. Judaism well, or Muslim. I, I'd be interested to get Anne's response to that in a moment's time as to whether she thinks that that, that is the case, that it's about these communities of, of religious people sort of that, that bring this beneficial effect. Um, uh, but we'll do that after a short break. We're going to go to a quick break and then we'll, we'll come back and be able to start really just opening up the conversation between you both. Uh, so Anne Morrissey and uh, Craig James, my guests on today's programme, we're asking, are Christians happier than atheists? I'm sure you've got a view on this as well. So if you'd like to write in, it's unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Um, don't forget, we hear your feedback towards the end of each show. And uh, you can find out more more about my guests Anne and Craig by going to today's show on the website that's premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter as you know N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. 
That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to today's program. Uh, we're asking, are Christians happier than atheists? Uh, be interested in what you think about this. But uh, on the show today, our Christian guest is Anne Morrissey. Uh, she regularly speaks on mission and community ministry and has written books and researched uh, around the issues of happiness and well-being. Uh, so, uh, well, she says it's not simple, obviously, but there seems to be evidence that certain habits of a religious person do tend towards increasing their well-being and happiness but then you've also got other variables like the u-shaped curve as it were which seems to show that midlife tends to produce slightly unhappier people anyway so we need to take these things into account uh, craig james is our atheist guest on unbelievable today he's a blogger and author of the religion virus why we believe in god i'll make sure there are links to both Anne and craig from today's web uh, website program but um, we're just having this conversation about uh, whether it's true that christians are happier than atheists i mentioned earlier that uh, the latest statistics from the office of national statistics here in the uk suggests again that religious people from all different faiths are happier than those who have no religion uh, hindus came out top christians were the second happiest followed by other faiths um, and uh, yes atheists languishing somewhere at the bottom now does this mean that being an atheist is is a miserable business uh, maybe it's not that simple um <laughs> and you were wanting to sort of come uh, sort of respond to some of the things craig was saying in that last section about um i think i think some of the variables you had in mind that might affect the way atheists feel oh, in different yes. points of it life was, it was really just trying to bring in this business of the u-shaped curve that if atheists are my presumption is predominantly now middle-aged and younger um then the increase in well-being, which is associated with being older, um, has yet to, if you want, lift some of the scores that um, are made of those without faith. In as much as the majority of people who would tick no religion on the census form are probably in middle age to younger, whereas most older people would still claim to have some sort of religious faith. That's a hunch. Yeah. Yes. It, it's it's an interesting sounds thought. Sounds quite reasonable to me. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it sounds reasonable to Craig. What, what about Craig's view that, um, re, you know, religious communities will inevitably produce this sort of well-being, whereas atheists are a bit more of a spread out. They don't tend to uh, accumulate together in the same way in, in communities, and therefore it's unsurprising that they don't have the benefit in that sense of, of a community to bring well-being. Do you think that's true, Anne? It does, but you see, one of the things I want to really make sure we don't ignore is that sometimes religion can go horribly wrong mm. um, and that we'd be naive and I think dishonest if we didn't flag that up. Um, and it's often when we come together that we can somehow mutate something which is healthy into something which can be quite destructive. And... I would like to chastise, if you want, my culture, my Christian culture, for being slower at acknowledging what makes for furious religion and what makes for healthy religion. And we're almost too late, I think, to do that kind of thinking. And it may be that some of the insights that Craig has got um, will help us mm. to be able to discern between healthy and unhealthy religion. 
That leads me directly to the, the next study I was going to mention because it's, it, it addresses your point very well. And this was another study of 190,000 people. This one was done uh, by Humboldt University in Berlin and University of Southampton. And they studied um, a bunch of data. And what they found was that um, atheists are only unhappy in strongly religious countries. And moreover, uh, it was interesting and it, uh, that religious people are happy in atheist countries. And what they decided, and of course, you can't, uh, the, the, the unscientific part of it is where you try to interpret this, but the basic idea is that religion has always been rather hostile to atheism. And so it's hardly surprising that atheists in strong, an atheist, for example, living in the south of the United States, they pretty much have to hide it. They are strongly uh, chastised and victimized, and and even you know the law goes against them. All sorts of things. It's very difficult to be an open atheist in a place like Mississippi or Louisiana. Uh, by contrast, atheists don't much care about religious people. So in countries like Sweden, which are highly atheistic, Christians are just as happy there as anywhere else. So Anne's point about the harm that religion sometimes does in its own name of uh, discriminating against. I mean, everybody's familiar, for example, with the. Uh, if you think of the movie Fiddler on the Roof, the fact that he's willing to throw out his own daughter for marrying somebody out of the faith. I mean, that's a terrible thing. Of course, that's going to bring unhappiness. And can I just come in, Craig, just to see yes, what your indeed. thought is? Um, what about the urge for certainty and whether that's a dynamic that might actually unite us, that the the desire for certainty kind of unravels the virtue of religion and the virtue of hesitancy about religion. Just just explain that for me a bit, Anne. What do you mean yeah. by the desire for certainty? And Well, a right answer mm-hmm. approach to life. Mm-hmm. Um, because that to me, um, and I see it within people of my own faith um, as well as those without faith, that if we are holding on to right answers, then that very process seems to carry um, the potential for a mutation right. it, of it, yes. honest searching yeah. and inquiry. Well, that, that brings me to a point I wanted to mention early on and I, I forgot about, which is that when we talk about the notion of, a, if, if call it atheist versus religion, I don't want to really cast it in versus terms, but that is sort of the question. The problem is there's actually more diversity amongst religion, yeah. religious people than there are between some religions and atheists. So it's very difficult in a discussion like this to group everybody into this, this lump of religious people. They're, if you take the universalists here in America, they're, I mean, they're practically atheists themselves by some people's <laughs> standards. And on the other hand, if you take the Baptists, they're very strongly authoritarian and they have all the answers and they're quite sure that they're right. So this question is greatly complicated by the complexity of religion itself. I think that's right. That's why I'm urging um, thoughtful Christians to be more confident about being able to discern what is healthy and what might be unhealthy religion. Um, and of course, one of the things you know that healthy religion does is that it doesn't indoctrinate, but really encourages people to think for themselves. Um, it always amuses me, to be honest, that I'm presumed as a Christian to believe that God created the world um, in seven days and that Adam and Eve were the culmination of that seven-day exertion, when in fact 
the Christians that I know would see that this is a story that speaks about the human condition. Um, and that's its usefulness and its virtue. Um, but healthy religion will always be humble about what it thinks that it is able to contribute. And most importantly, healthy religion will invest in what it is for rather than focus all the time in what it is against. And it feels as if the leaders of um, the faiths, not just Christian um, faith, too easily let the media push them into a conversation about all the things that Christians or Muslims are against. And that, I think, is again a clue about religion when it is mutating into something that is not good. But That's a Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of agreement here between you yes, both on, on I, these fronts, yeah. um, which is fine. Um, but I, I tell you where there probably wouldn't be agreement, <laughs> I'm just going to try it, Craig, is that when we then start to say what's the nature of a good life um, and that it's there that we will probably find that we would differ. I, you know, I'll, there, I'm actually going to disagree with that premise. <laughs> <laughs> but let me go back just a moment here and address another thing that's always been a, a an issue that I have with religion uh, and again, this goes to grouping everybody into one bucket, and of course there's many buckets. One of the things that I very much dislike about religion is the thing you just mentioned, which is that these people, groups who claim we have the answer, and imagine that you are within one of those churches, and I've known many people who were. We have these very uh, strict churches in America, and people start to question their beliefs, and they look at the, the tenets of their religion and say, wait a second, this just can't be true. The very thing you mentioned about the 6,000 years and Adam and Eve creating the world in seven days, people look at that and they say, they just can't be true. But they're in a society where questioning those sorts of things is deadly to your position in the society. You can be cast out from all your friends and family and whatnot and made a pariah. And that does not lead to happiness. And so you have this minority of people, while Overall, people may be quite happy. You have people who are who are quite unhappy. Yes, uh, that's one of the one of the unpleasant things. But going I'm, to your, your second point about, um, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? <laughs> Do you Lost know I couldn't? <laughs> I couldn't remember what my second point was. <laughs> you were but I've me got on, another one. On, well, well, <laughs> oh, I know what it was. Um, it was that the way in which we go on to live the good life that might start to expose well, well, some of the differences let, between Let's them. allow you to open that up a bit, Anne. Um, I mean, firstly, obviously, when religion is authoritarian, indoctrinating, um, doesn't allow open questions and exploration, I'm sure it can have a, a bad effect on someone's well-being. Nonetheless, the as far as we can see, the figures seem to suggest that in its overall effect, and, and I suspect this is more from what you're talking about, the the aspect that, having a sort of believing at least that you are in contact with something larger than yourself that you that there is an ultimate purpose to life and those sorts of things are they, do these feed into why people who do claim a faith would report greater happiness um than, than say an atheist who and i don't mean to to, to tar you with any brushes here craig but but no, if an atheist is is essentially committed to the belief that when you die that's it and there's nothing more then uh you can imagine why someone having a belief that there is an old a greater purpose and so on to their life could could could, could feel happier indeed i i agree with that a hundred percent and as you say it, it it does not speak to the truth or falsehood of it 
but but I'd be interested to hear from Anne if if she thinks that is a, is a factor in why people report greater well being if they if they have faith. I th- I think that it is a more complex fusion than that, mm. and I'm not aware of any research which has been sensitive enough to have been able to pick up just what somebody's personal theology and personal experience mm. is, with the exception of some work that I was involved in when I was 30 years younger than I am now, (laughs) which was about asking people about a religious experience. And certainly there what we found, and this might chime in, Craig, here with um, the issue of poverty and faith, Um, because when we found that people were at the end of their tether, often they would have a sense of God's presence, God being at their shoulder. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was very clear was that that sensation gave a resilience to that particular struggle, but actually impacted the rest of their lives and their confidence Mm. of feeling secure. It also made them less authoritarian. Um, so there is something about a sense of God being alongside which has a very positive and sustained positive mm. impact. I, I read another survey. I'm afraid I don't, I don't have the details to hand, but, but which suggested, uh, again, that um, I think what it was about peop- what types of job tend to give the most job satisfaction. And I think the, hi- the group that reported the highest levels of job satisfaction were um, something like hairdressers and uh, vicars, uh, and the, the, I guess my my hunch would, again would be that if you believe that your God your job is actually in some way tied to this big story of God's redemptive plan and uh, his he's actually using you in doing that and carrying that out, then then that's bound to have an effect on the level of sort of well being and I suppose purpose that you feel in doing a job that other people you know might not feel that from? Well, I think you quoting that is an illustration of the misuse of statistics because in relation to clergy, Mm. um, you're only quoting one aspect of the research which suits us. Mm. Clergy have a lot of job satisfaction. Mm. But also, if you look at the nature of um, burnout, they also have a very high High level of of burnout. burnout. And it's only when you put the two together that you are, I think, doing justice to yes, the research. Yes, I'm sure it's, it, it is. That's a fair, isn't it, picture. Craig? This is an example of how okay. we... David? <laughs> oh, yes. We <laughs> choose what suits. Yes, indeed it is. I, I, I would like to address your point about the satisfaction and the, com- I guess you call it comfort, that people get when they're, as you say, when you're at the end of your rope and things are bad and people of faith have something to call on. That is actually one of my biggest objections to religion overall. And I, I, I tell a story in my book of my grandfather who had a pretty hard life. He was a farmer in the Central Valley of California. And he told me once, you know, I've had this terrible hard life and I would only have been able, I couldn't survive without God. And I thought, to me, it was the other way around that what he did was he gave up and he used this comfort and this promise that everything was okay and that there was somebody by his side to just give up and, and not fix the problems in his life. And I think that if you look down through the history of religion, this is one of the topics I followed at some length when I was researching my book. The history of religion is one of of the upper class, which 
for a large part of religion were the priests uh, throughout Europe, basically telling everybody, look, we've got all these uh, you know, wonderful life and everything, and your life sucks, but it's okay because when you're done, there's going to be this huge reward, and so don't revolt against us, please. And that, <laughs> I think, yes. Can I come in, Craig? Yes, please. Yes. Um, one of the things in the British context, um, we've kind of shaken off that kind of religious oppression and probably from the misnamed period called the Enlightenment. But in relation to the work that I'm talking about by David Hay and myself, um, these experiences of God's alongsideness was spontaneous. It was not about people um, already having an existing relationship with God. Now, that I, I research is in, could be interpreted as being about brain chemistry, you know, so much adrenaline around and suddenly there is um, an altered state of consciousness. All I can say is that in functional terms, it certainly helped add to a person's resilience. Can I, can I just come in with what Craig seemed to be getting at, though? His view being, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Craig, that in your view, for instance, uh, your grandfather who said, you know, my faith was what got me through, you, you think that's a bit of a cop-out and a, a bit of an excuse to throw in the towel at some level. Um, I've heard it said, you know, religion is a crutch, some people say, and, and it's a sort of crutch you should be getting rid of in some way. Christians often come back with, well, a crutch is useful if you've got a broken leg and Many people do have broken lives, which seem to improve if they've got God in them um, at some level. I mean, what, what's your response to that objection, though, Anne, of, of Craig's, that, that religion sort of is a pacifying thing? Oh, and, bring, and... On, bring on the Methodists. <laughs> Early Methodism was an extraordinary achievement, and I would say an achievement of the species, um, because what you got there was people working together and drawing on a very generous theology um, a theology that was hopeful and inclusive, um, not about priests. And by the way, I'm not a Methodist, um, is to say to then to be able to battle with circumstances. And having done that, rather than then saying, well, I'm all right, Jack, then moving with a concern and compassion for those whom they did not know, um, a wide sense of fraternal relations. So... There is some very interesting illustrations of how faith, and particularly these days, faith has brought actually a confidence in agency rather than a diminishment of it. Mm. I suppose we can all find examples in both directions, obviously. Craig, from, from Anne's perspective, there's plenty of examples, counterexamples to, to, to your one there that suggests... Christian belief, Christian community has enabled people to overcome odds that they would otherwise have perhaps struggled with. Oh, indeed. But uh, I think the basic thesis is that, and, and I, I completely agree with that, there's many good things to what Christian uh, groups have done and the support they give one another. But the basic, there's a really deep and profound belief in Christianity that life sucks and then you die and it's good. I and don't know. I, do you know, Craig, I don't, I've not come across that for decades well, i can remember is, when yeah i know the problem is that christians i think have have fooled themselves as to how good life is if you look around the world one of the biggest problems with atheists one of my my favorite quotes is by kurt vonnegut who said um i've got it here somewhere that basically science never cheered anybody up the truth of the human condition is awful and you can look around here i am sitting in my beautiful home in san diego and life does seem pretty yes. good but the fact is 
99% of the people in the world do not have the life that I lead. And in fact, about 70% of them are living in poverty and misery and they don't get medical care. And, and, so and that, I think... That's the truth of the yeah. world. I know, and this is where you and I probably will will share some sympathy in that I do believe that the the Western way, the meme, um, is actually more problematic than the religious meme, except when it mutates like in ISIL, but that's maybe for later. Um, and that what has happened is that we have accommodated ourselves um, in the West, in the Northern Hemisphere, to living in a playpen. And whilst ever we do that, we fail to engage with the raw and abrasive aspects of life, and that that is an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Um, so my challenge is for, if you want, our Western presumptions of comfort um, and our right to an easy life. Now, I think that a healthy faith will challenge us to actually engage with those raw and abrasive aspects of life, even if only by proxy. I, while I agree in a broad sense with you, I, I don't agree that religion is not the problem here. I'll, you said that the Western name, if you will, is the problem. In fact, what has happened is that religion has blocked progress century after century after century when uh, even today a, a, a classic example is the uh, various uh, Catholic Church and others blocking birth control, blocking disease yes, control, yes. blocking population control in general. There are 7 billion people on the earth right now and it'll be 9 billion before 2050. It's not sustainable and yet the Christians primarily and Muslims around the world are blocking all efforts to control population. Scientists know that we have to. Sociologists know that we have to. It's the religions that are blocking it. And so in a very broad sense, it's the religions that are causing misery. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I am going to pose a question. And that is, why would you think that, the, that we should be the first species that actually controls or reduces its fertility? Because it's we are the first species that's an intel that is intelligent enough to foresee that inevitable catastrophe that's approaching us, and we can do something about it if we get rid of the religious religious uh, prohibitions against that sort of thing. And I think that although we're drifting away from well-being, um, but seeing I've got the the conch and the space, I'll carry on. Um, that we are actually overconfident, I think, about that intelligence because I'm equally aware of malfunctions and gridlocks that are a product of the application of our intelligence. So the, the humility, which I believe is also part of the Christian narrative um, at its best, is so critical and allows us to well, at least harness our intelligence but to do so with some caution. I mean, I've heard it, you know, there, there was a, a famous bus campaign here in the UK a few years ago, Craig. Um, there's probably no God. Now, stop worrying about it and enjoy your life. And, well, there were some people who responded to that saying, well, that's all very well if you've got a comfortable life and you live in the West and, you know, you've got food on your table and a car to drive around. It's not much uh, solace for the woman you know, who's lost her husband in a developing country and her child has malaria and so on. In her case, she may actually get the most solace from believing that her life isn't meaningless and purposeless. Actually, God will somehow redeem even a life that 
is lived in relative misery compared to many of our lives. Now, I, I'm not saying that makes it true, and obviously we've established that. But is it fair to say that relig- a, a religious belief may, in fact, be something that tends towards happiness for people in those kinds of circumstances? It, it could be, but let me let me give, pose a broader question back to you. One of the biggest problems that the World Health Organization has had is that the Muslims are preventing doctors from going in and inoculating pre- people so that uh, because they have all these terrible, foolish beliefs from the Middle Ages. Uh, so that very woman whose child has malaria or polio or something might not have had that circumstance if not for the religious interference. But then you could so- easily put, but you know, I, I was. I was part of a team in my gap year of Christians going around inoculating people. Um, You know, it it cuts both ways, doesn't it, Craig? You've got religion that's bad. You've got religion that's good. You know, I guess that's the point. I I think one of the things I'd want to, to keep us on the theme is that there is a very dodgy narrative, which is that money and stuff equals happiness. And that is clearly a dodgy message which we imbibe almost with our mother's milk. Yes, in fact, there's a... That's the Western meme, in a sense. Well, (laughs) yes. There's a study on that in the United States that shows that happiness is correlated with money up to the point when you have enough to get by. In the United States, it's fifty dollars to $70,000 per year for a family, and after that, money makes almost no difference in your happiness. That's right, yes. Really what that says is that poverty causes unhappiness, but money does not cause happiness. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, Jesus had a few things to say about money and, and happiness, yeah. didn't he? And um, d- 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 does any of the research as to happiness kind of correlate with what we find from the mouth of Jesus about where we find true true joy and happiness? Well, I think one of the the clearest and underestimated features of Jesus's teaching is in relation to scapegoating and blaming. Um, and various people, including Richard Dawkins, but I'm more interested in René Girard, who I think's a couple of decades ahead of Richard Dawkins. And that is this urge to want what others have, the mimetic of desire. And that when we find that somebody's got what we want and we can't have it, the ease with which we will then go on to blame and victimise seems to be a feature of the species. Um, And I think that Jesus was very clear in saying that part of our calling as Christians is to do battle with that inclination to blame and to make the person whom we are jealous of, envy, the whole story of literature is this wanting what somebody else Mm. has got. Um, This is a really good point. I'm glad you raised it. And I agree 100%. In fact, there have been really good studies. There was a uh, one of these videos went around of a monkey who saw another monkey had something. Apparently, it's not just our species. It's built, <laughs> in, it's built into primates to be jealous and to be envious because that's it's a, a survival yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's a survival trait. And the important thing, I, I, I think the message that Jesus preached and the message that any anyone who has uh, a mind would understand is that as human beings with this intelligence that we have, we have to recognize these animal tendencies in ourselves and overcome them, be be greater than them. Whether you do it through religion or through humanism or whatever gets you there, I think we all have to strive for that, to not have this desire for, as you say, to have what the others are and then to, to desire what your neighbor has and then to blame them and so forth. 
That's the foundation of war. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to take a quick break, Craig. Yes. We're, we're, we're already out of time. Uh, I did say it, it flies by and it has flown by today. Uh, so we're going to have to, um, uh, on the other side of a short break, uh, wrap up our conversation. We're asking today on Unbelievable, are Christians happier than atheists? Uh, recent statistics from the Office of National Statistics suggest that at least here in the UK, yes, religious people from all different faiths are happier than those who state they have no religion. Uh, in fact, Hindus came out top uh, with Christians following in second. Um, but uh, we'll conclude our discussion on this with my guests Craig James and Anne Morrissey in a moment's time. Welcome back to the third and final part of Unbelievable this Saturday afternoon. It's me, Justin Briley, bringing you, as usual, the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together. And we'll be concluding our discussion on whether Christians are happier than atheists in just a moment's time. We'll be hearing some of your feedback as well. Last week's programme on uh, divine punishment and whether that's uh, good or bad for us and the evolutionary origins of it and what that has to say about the Christian view of God. Loads of things debated and we'll be hearing some of your feedback to that as well. Uh, Later on today, between four and five if you listen to the profile angie lendon is one of the guests she's a singer and songwriter and then tv theme tune composer simon may too uh, he's the man behind the eastenders theme tune we'll be hearing about their life and faith next week on unbelievable uh, we're going to be hearing the story of luke griffith williams and he was a christian training for ordination then well he sort of lost his faith in christianity uh, jesus as the fulfillment of the jewish prophecies of the messiah he became a jew then he lost his faith in that and uh, we'll find out why he now calls himself an atheist and uh, we'll be hearing a response to him as well interesting discussion for you next week as we examine one person's life journey and uh, whether our christian guest can respond to it uh, so uh, look out for that at the same time next week don't forget that all of these programs and loads of other stuff available from the unbelievable website that's premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable and you can find the ways to get in touch via facebook and twitter there as well so uh, i do encourage you to visit the website and uh, see what's on offer premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable and unbelievable and faith explore brought to you in association with the other part of my life that's premier christianity magazine i'm the editor of the magazine it's a a monthly magazine here in the uk that reaches tens of thousands of people and um, is packed with brilliant features interviews reviews news cultural commentary and all sorts of stuff Uh, the latest edition is out now the february edition a bit of a theological focus in a couple of the articles there so if you're a listener of unbelievable and you enjoy theology why not ask Ask for a free sample copy. Uh, you'll be able to read my article on four new theological trends that Christians need to know about. And uh, in that, I lay out a sort of bluffer's guide to, for instance, annihilationism, the view that um, that rather than there being eternal conscious torment, hell is the extinction of a person. Uh, N.T. Wright's view on uh, Paul in terms of the so-called new perspective. Uh, we deal with open theism as well. Uh, that's been popularized by people like Greg Boyd, the view that God doesn't necessarily know the future that's probably the most controversial of the four and uh, we also have a look at uh, the new evidence for the eyewitness testimony in the gospels from people like richard borkham so uh, if you're interested in that, um, you can go to the website premierchristianity.com and you can find the article up there on the website or indeed um, see it, uh, as it were, in the flesh, on the page in the magazine. That's uh, uh, from the free sample link at the website, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Be interested to know what you make of the article yourself and, of course, lots of the other features within it. So, uh, so do check that out if you can. OK, time to get into the final part of today's discussion. 
You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, it's been a really interesting discussion today on Unbelievable, asking, are Christians happier than atheists? Well, uh, everyone seems to be in agreement that, by and large, you, you could argue that the the, the surveys, the statistics tend to point in that direction, though, of course, we've been careful to make sure that we're not saying that makes Christianity truer. Um, that would, of course, uh, be dependent on other factors. Um, but the the questions that we've we've raised are also around whether there are other contributing factors. Uh, Craig James, my atheist guest, has argued that, well, it may be true that studies show religious people are happier, but um, have we taken into account the fact that atheists probably have a harder time in religious countries? Um, and that may be one of the factors at play. Um, and uh, Anne Morrissey, my Christian guest on the programme today, has warned us to also factor in variables such as the I keep wanting to call it the U-bend, but it's the the U-shaped curve, I think, is what you call it, Anne, Um, that obviously levels of happiness can vary uh, depending on life stage and these these and other things need to be taken into account. Um, Nonetheless, um, you've talked today, Anne, about the the fact that religious practice, certain types of rhythms of prayer and um, I suppose uh, the, 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 the aspects of community life and so on that can be helpful in producing well-being are, are well documented. If there's someone who's, who isn't feeling very happy, um, what, what would be your practical advice to them as a Christian of, of how you would go about starting to, to key into some of these things that from, which from a religious perspective do, do enable happiness and well-being? Well, one of the the essential features is the practice of gratitude. Um, and gratitude is an action, but it begins with the state of mind because we have to be noting the things for which we are grateful, even in tough circumstances, maybe particularly in tough circumstances. So the counting of blessings, which sounds terribly naive <laughs> and simplistic, actually does make a difference. Mm. Um But one of the things I'd also like just really to bring a smile to people's um, faces, really. Um, One of the things that can get us down is anxiety, whether that's, well, particularly the the kind of routine anxiety. I'm not talking about chronic and very acute anxiety. Um, But when we are down, um, we know that singing helps. We know that fun and laughter helps. But one of the extraordinary features is looking on the face of a baby. Hmm. Now, you don't need me to kind of join up the dots to say that the very notion that God might be present in the world through a baby um, is not unrelated to what anxious creatures we are. Hmm. Um, so the very essence, the kind of the beginning of our faith um, really does address the anxiety which seems to be so deeply rooted in Homo sapien as a species. Well, there you go. Practice gratitude and um, find the nearest baby. <laughs> look, have look. a photograph of a baby <laughs> yes. nearby. Absolutely. I have my first granddaughter, so I know exactly what you, there, what you mean. There you go. Lovely. Um, Craig, um, do you think atheists could learn from religion? Uh, there, there was a book that came out a few years ago uh, by um, a British atheist called Alain de Botton called Religion for Atheists, in which he essentially gave the suggestion that atheists should, in a sense, borrow from the good aspects of religion, even if they reject the, the supernatural beliefs, um, in order to live more wholesome lives. What, what's your view on all of that? 
I, I agree with that 100%. I think that uh, one of the things that's happened as atheism has been growing, uh, there's been a lot of militant atheism, um, and people have been rejecting everything to do with religion just out of sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of attitude. And I think that's a mistake because religion has been the foundation of our society for many thousands of years. And in the course of doing that, it has adapted uh, all sorts of cultural um, ideas that really work well for people. They make people happy. They ha- that it's more than religion. Religion, you think of the specific beliefs, but really when you talk about religion, you're talking about a huge cultural phenomena. And I think it's important not to throw that out with the beliefs if you're an atheist, that you need to look at things like getting together once a week with a community, singing, talking about things, helping one another in, uh, when, the, when catastrophes arise. These are all wonderful things that religion does very well indeed. And I think that the humanists and atheists and various <laughs> secular people need to, need to remember that. Yeah, may, maybe it's why rock concerts and stand-up comedy have become so popular. They're, they're almost a stand-in these days for, there you for, go. for what church has, uh, has, has provided often in, in the past. But thank you very much, um, Craig and Anne. It's been a really interesting discussion, and uh, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. If you've been listening and you'd like to get uh, your thoughts in, then I'll be giving out the ways to get in touch with the show in a moment's time. In the meantime, if you want more on Anne and Craig, I'll make sure, as I've said, that their links are available from today's website uh, from the show. That's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. In the meantime, uh, Craig and Anne, thanks for being with me on the show today. Thank you for having me. And same way. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, just before I remind you how to get in touch with the show, um, a reminder that um, it's not too late if you're listening in time um, to join the Unbelievable Christian and Skeptic Discussion Group happening in London on Monday, February the 8th. Uh, this is organised by listeners of the show. They get together on a regular basis to hear speakers and then discuss and interact with them. Uh, it's happening at the William the Fourth Pub, 7 Shepherdess Walk, uh, between 7.30 and 930 on Monday evening and uh, the guest speaker is Alan Duval uh, so I believe he's an atheist and so he's looking at the the question of why uh, monotheism has become a widespread belief across many cultures could there be a sort of evolutionary explanation for that well the Christians and skeptics are meeting there will then discuss his ideas afterwards and uh, it's an interesting meeting of minds always at uh, that venue uh, so uh, if you want more information uh, go to meetup.com the website and search for the unbelievable Christian and skeptic discussion group in London. If you want to get in touch about today's show, uh, the email address is unbelievable at premier.org.uk. I look forward to hearing your thoughts via Facebook and Twitter as well at unbelievablejb, facebook.com slash unbelievablejb to get in touch that way to follow the show. You can also, of course, leave your comments underneath the latest edition of the program online. I'm going to read a couple of those as well from the latest show. Um, so if you want to find the latest program, share it with others, listen to the podcast and so on. Uh, that's all available at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. And if you're a regular listener, that, that email, that address, that web address should should just roll off the tongue. I repeat it so many times on this show. Um, let's uh, first of all, though, um, see why. Who, who, oh, here we go. Alex got in touch, says, I've been enjoying your show over the last 12 months here in Australia, but I can't help but notice the lack of a regular female voice on your show. Are there no female theologians or atheists? I'd love to hear a bit more from the women. Love the show. Keep up the great work. 
Well, Alex, um, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm glad, obviously, that uh, this week we were able to feature Anne, uh, a, a female voice. But there aren't enough women on Unbelievable. I'm, I'm very aware of the, uh, the the lack of diversity in that respect. Uh, and uh, it's been brought up before I've brought it up. And the, the reality is, um, it, in the world of apologetics, which is mostly where the show tends to centre around, there are not that many women. Um, and I'm always open to suggestions, though. And, uh, again, very often... The most well-known atheist voices tend to be male as well. Um, So your suggestions always welcome. And I will try to do more to redress that balance as well in the the course of this year. Um, Let's talk about last week's programme. And this was a discussion uh, between Dominic Johnson and Peter S. Williams on whether belief in divine punishment is good or bad for us. Uh, Dominic Johnson has written a book called God is Watching You, uh, drawing on what he believes are the evolutionary origins of um, the, the 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 belief in divine punishment and why that's been good for societies and cooperation and so on. And we sort of asked questions around whether does that sort of uh, explain away um, Christian belief in divine punishment and so on. Uh, it was an interesting discussion. Um, Ed says, really appreciated the respectful tone of the discussion. I understood that Dominic, as an academic, did not want to stray off his expertise and make pronouncements about arguments for and against theism or Christianity. It's like climate scientists who avoid making pronouncements on policy. So I'd like to throw my thoughts of this as a listener. Uh, The genetic fallacy was mentioned, which is okay, but doesn't end the discussion. It merely shows that evolutionary explanations for how beliefs arose don't prove that they are false beliefs. A better way of expressing it is using an argument to the best explanation. Basically, we can ask, which hypothesis works best? First, under the theistic hypothesis, what is the likelihood that we should observe the religious beliefs that we observe in the world? I'd say it is low. The diversity of beliefs in particular does not indicate a one true God is behind them all. Uh, Next, under the hypothesis of naturalism, and in particular unguided evolution, what is the likelihood that we should observe the religious beliefs that we do observe in the world? I'd say it's reasonably high, as the work by Dominic and others in the field shows. Uh, John Thomas says, if, I think if one goes by the understanding of ancient Greek philosophy and probably some Stoics like Seneca, there are two groups of people. One would be ordinary people who are involved in their daily occupations, who don't have the time to seek wisdom, and others will be true philosophers who do seek wisdom. Hence, for someone like Plato or like later Stoics, seeking wisdom is seen as seeking the highest virtues, and once they find it, they practice it so as to live their life according to those virtues just because it's the right thing to do and additionally provide them with higher well-being in their lives. Uh, Stoics call them Stoic sages, those who demonstrate the art of living to others as a paradigm for others to follow. Uh, For ordinary people, it is good to teach them of divine punishment scenarios to keep them in line and religion does a good job in achieving it. And uh, Jay Webb says, uh, observing something that happens pretty often in this show, the Christian guest graciously contrasts his opponent's frustratingly reasonable position with some ignorant or extreme anti-religious opinion, which is casually attributed to Richard Dawkins or some other prominent atheist in absentia. Uh, The example that came up in this episode was the claim that Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett commit the genetic fallacy by using theories about the origins of religion in order to prove people's religious beliefs are false. Sorry, but I don't buy it. I think if you had those guys in the room, they would completely agree that understanding the origin of a belief doesn't prove the truth or falsehood of the belief. 
All right. Thank you very much for some of those responses that were on the, uh, the, the website underneath the latest show. So that's one way to comment if you want to do that. Uh, these ones came in by email. Um, this one um, uh, says, God never punishes. It is our own error that punishes us. We punish ourselves by not listening to God's continual and never-ending guidance. And uh, Peter Harris in Gravesend says, thanks for another great debate. It was refreshing to hear Dominic Johnson not declaiming religious belief in the harsh new atheist style but stating in a balanced way that religion does good and bad unfortunately peter williams missed a trick here johnson's argument that religious belief in evolutionary terms has played a significant part in the emergence of human moral codes is an argument also against the universal proposition of hitchens that all religion poisons everything hitchens is caught in the paradox that his moral complaint against religions if johnson is right has been made possible or facilitated by the role of religion in forming the moral sense he has to make his complaint in that respect religion is not poisonous uh, williams misses a second trick evolutionary biology can only account for and describe human morality's origins and content but cannot therefore justify that morality biology is descriptive not normative here if morality cannot be grounded in evolution it's grounded somewhere else and as williams uses c.s lewis often he might have injected lewis's argument for morality here well i'm, I'm sure i don't think it's so much he missed a trick as simply it, it wasn't possible to fit everything into the conversation peter i'm sure um as you know peter s williams uh, would be fully aware of that issue that um the fact we can describe our morality does not in a sense give us a grounding for it and uh, he would obviously be the first to point to the moral argument for the existence of god uh stephen on facebook says interesting program brought up some questions in my mind i heard you touch on some of these justin i would have liked to hear more about the implications of abandoning religious faith if the outcomes lead to greater cooperation within large societies if this has become part of our evolution as a society and as individuals then would a gradual drift away have negative consequences on our survival as a whole Uh, would this be a potential devolution i'd also like to hear more about the research surrounding the level of cooperation in response to fear and possible coercion i would suspect that cooperation of this sort would have its problems in creating long-term satisfactory living as a group just a few thoughts perhaps i should buy the book seems interesting thanks for providing a program for such stimulating conversations and Alf Latham says I enjoyed the exchange on the divine authority and the advent of law as we changed over from hunter-gatherers to city-states it's worth emphasizing that as groups exceed the so-called Dunbar networking number of 150 so laws must have developed to regulate society it goes along with the marketplace trading accounting and the arrival of written language as you know they are there are diorite slabs which are now in the Louvre museum containing 282 laws in the Semitic language of Akkadian I didn't actually know that, Alf, but thanks for telling me. Uh, Part of one steel shows the god of justice, Shamash, handing the laws to King Hammurabi, who reigned over Babylon from about 1795 to 1750 BC, and he had them placed prominently in the city centre. They're not the first written laws, but they are the most complete known from ancient times, and I quote, The gods Anum and Enlil named me to promote the welfare of the people, me, Hammurabi, the devout God-fearing prince, to cause justice to prevail in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evil, that the strong might not oppress the weak to rise like the sun over the people and to light up the land it is the king endorsed by god who is the one who enforces the laws in the case of moses the laws are delivered to him initially as though they are god's own laws but later they're described as secondary whatever is the case for authorship for laws one sad observation is that over the centuries the victim has often been missed out that is in contrast to what happens among hunter-gatherers where the victim is recognized and compensated by the wrongdoer for a just peace it's only in recent years that we 
we have rediscovered the claims of victims for peace and reconciliation through initiatives called restorative justice. The kingdom of God starts with the recognition of each other's worth, apology, forgiveness, peace and all-round reconciliation. Thanks, Alf. Some very interesting thoughts uh, in your email there. Uh, thanks for all of those uh, comments that came in in regard to last week's programme. Uh, still getting a mailbag full, though, of uh, comments on the show of a few weeks ago now in which we debated the rights and wrongs of gay parenting. And uh, Bobby Lopez, uh, who was raised in a gay family, but uh, later came to find that uh, he regretted that. He, he didn't think it's best for children generally not to be raised by a, in a heterosexual unit, family unit. Um, well, he was debating James Croft. And um, so, um, again, we, we're getting a lot of feedback on this. So John says, I love your program. An American Christian, I've followed your program for three years after hearing a reference by James White on the Alpha and Omega ministry program. I agreed with Bobby's position. However, I wanted to point out to Bobby and future debaters that it's important to remain calm and collected in any debate. When I saw your description of the podcast episode stating that it got heated, I initially thought it would be the supporters of gay adoption who were the excited, intense ones. Uh, to the audience, raising one's voice and interrupting can sometimes give the appearance of a, a bankrupt or lost position. It would have been very rewarding to hear more on the sociological studies and their methodologies. If I was a billionaire, I would fund you and your guests for hours of debating. Oh, well, that's very kind, John. If you know any billionaires who would like to fund the show, then obviously get them in touch with me. Uh, you also offer a couple of suggestions for future episodes. Um, love to hear a debate on the origins of rights. Uh, that would be interesting. And second, you've had a debate on gay marriage, gay parenting, transgenderism, divorce and remarriage. I'd like to hear a debate on other sexual lifestyles that are still taboo, such as incest and polygamy. OK, thank you very much. Um, Travis um, says, uh, I had the opportunity to listen to the podcast about gay couples adopting children, and I'm very torn on this subject. My wife is adopted by a heterosexual couple and was adopted at birth. She has no contact with her biological parents from the day she was born. And for 28 years, has never known them. She's now trying to find her biological parents and the process of doing so has raised many questions in her life as to why her parents didn't want her. The idea of two people making a child and not keeping said child is highly damaging to anyone who has never known their biological parents. I agree that the child deserves the right to know and have a relationship with their biological parents if they want. On the flip side, we have very good friends of ours who are a gay married couple who are trying to adopt a child and I believe that they would make a wonderful set of male and male parents. I think that the missed hardship of the argument brought from both sides was that the child in question will receive more love and guidance or less love and guidance as opposed to the child mindset of I know two gay people are not able to make a baby so where did I come from and why am I here? It is a huge psychological issue for any child up to any age of anyone to be forced to ask in their own mind why didn't my bio biological parents keep me? In situations of the state removing a child from a home it's brought to their attention but not in situations of the child simply being adopted from birth regardless of the age or sexual orientation of the household love support and guidance are essential but the child should have the right to know who their real parents are and given the opportunity to know and form a relationship with both biological parents if they choose to do so if a man and a woman separate based on one being homosexual they're still with one biological parent and that can help but to lose both parents prior to knowing them and never be given the chance to know them because of the discretion of the parents is a travesty to the child i'd love to get further involved in discussion with this if you have anyone who'd be willing to discuss it with me um, I, I guess very often when it comes to gay couples who um, perhaps have a child perhaps by surrogacy um, it might be for instance one of the male partners would be the biological parent but obviously the biological mother 
may not be involved in the relationship once the child is born and so on. Um, so, so I guess that it's not that necessarily always biological parents are, are, are not involved, just that one party may not be. But there are indeed um, instances when uh, ni- you know, adoption and so on means that uh, neither biological parent is, is in the frame. I think we've got time for maybe uh, one or two more here. Uh, this is from Avril. Uh, says, uh, listening to the debate, uh, I agreed with Bobby on the issue. We have not had time to discover the long-term effects of homosexual influence on today's society. We've not seen the outcome yet of surrogate parenting, i.e. children who have no idea who their biological parents were, what their family heritage is, who they are. I heard a man state that he was a manufactured child. Uh, I can't remember his name, but that is how he feels. And I think we're just at the beginning of a backlash on this whole issue. I want what I want and I'll get it whatever the consequences and whoever is affected. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to all of those who've been in touch in regards to those shows of late that have caused a lot of discussion. And uh, I hope you'll get in touch as well about today's programme. Tell me your views on happiness. Um, are you happier as a believer or as an atheist or some other religious belief? And uh, Does it have any bearing on the truth of it? And um, why do you think Christians might be happier than atheists overall? I'd be interested to hear from you. Unbelievable at premier.org.uk. In the meantime, it's been great having you with me today on the show. Let me tell you what's coming up next week. You're unbelievable. We're going to be hearing the story of Luke Griffiths Williams and how he, starting out as uh, going into training for Anglican ordination, lost his faith in that, became a Jew... And lost his face in that and became an atheist today. Uh, We'll be hearing his story and a response to it from a Christian guest. Uh, This is the show that aims to get you thinking every Saturday afternoon. In the meantime, I'm going to hand you over for the profile. Two exciting guests coming up next here on Premier Christian Radio. Radio.